Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I feel like there's a very black and white kind of narrative around more versus enough. The phrase I like to use and, and the way I've come to think about this question you're posing is, why don't we just give ourselves permission to achieve less? The notion behind this is there's stuff in life that's important to us. There's stuff in life we, we have to do just to keep our life going. But most of us are running around so busy that we're not living. The one way that we can address this issue is to let go of these flawed self-worth anchors and replace them with an authentic definition of how we want to value our self-worth. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Manisha, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Srini, it's great to get to talk to you again. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you back here. You and I had probably one of those conversations that I feel like I have quoted and revisited hundreds of times over the past couple of years. You have a new book out called Money Zen, all of which we will get into. But uh, I wanted to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping and influencing where you've ended up with your life and career? Yeah, so my dad um, was born in... um in India, in the state of Gujarat, and he came over for graduate school um, and started in civil engineering and and wound his way into business and ultimately became um, the CEO of a, a Fortune 500 um, company, and not a, 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 at the lower end of that. So his whole career has been in, in finance and his biggest like my biggest money career memory with my dad, he and I still laugh about it is I was about 11 years old and he sat me down with his financial calculator, HP 12C, and showed me how if I um, 
compounded my babysitting money out and my investments grew at six, seven percent after inflation, how much money I'd have at age 65. And when I saw those numbers, I was like, I'm all into this, this money stuff. Um, my mom, um, uh, has, has been a, a teacher all her life and I'm really proud of her. She went back, um, for her PhD so she could teach at the college level at age 50. And she's always, she's, you know, an original hippie and read me gender neutral books and gen, had me play with gender neutral toys when I was a kid. And, and she taught me that money gives women voices and choices. So those were my early links around money, my childhood, and more or less how I got introduced to the fact that finance is a profession. Mm-hmm. So the two things that I wonder, because you alluded to the idea of growing up mixed race, and you say you know that your parents met in early 1969 in Rochester, married within a year, and then they had you in August 1970, and then your brother came along seven years later. But you say, when my parents walked through downtown Columbus in the late 1970s with their mixed race children, it wasn't exactly a scandalous sight, but it could still draw the occasional hard stare. So one thing that I wonder is, one, what were the sort of cultural narratives that you inherited from parents? Like, and how did they integrate the two different cultures and preserve, you know, sort of the Indian aspect of your heritage when you're mixed race? It's been interesting to me to observe my mixed race experience versus other people's. My mom, because of her hippie um, background, was fascinated by Indian culture. So she learned to cook Indian food. She learned how to, you know, put on a sari. Um, and we had, we used to go back to India every other summer to vi- visit family. And my mom brought back lots of silk and batik prints. And, you know, so we had a lot of Indian artifacts and food. Um, and, uh, there's not a huge Indian community in the state of Indiana, but, um, we would all congregate in Indianapolis, a lot of us, um, at Diwali and celebrate. So I felt like I had, I I felt very integrated into the Indian side of my family. Also, as all of us who are Indian know, there's a great emphasis on, on education. Um, and um, as I absorbed that as well, but one of the things I talk about in the book is there's, there's another part about being an Indian female um, that a lot of Americans probably don't know, which is that many of us um, have uh, uh, facial hair. And in India, the way you deal with it, especially on your upper lip, is you thread it and it tends to hit um, in puberty. And... Um, when that happened to me, my mom had no idea, you know, kind of what to do with it. She was blonde hair and blue eyed, never happened to her. And I was, I was so mercilessly teased for a variety of things, but being called mustache mouth was definitely one of them. And so I had these various different imprints. Um, and that painful bullying, um, was a factor that really played into the way my adult life evolved. Mm -hmm. Um, And that came from being mixed race. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one thing that I think that caught my attention, and the reason I 
wanted to start by talking about your parents was that you mentioned that, you know, the messages of getting married and, you know, making money and, and having kids and all that were not passed on to you, which are so sort of pervasive in the Indian culture, nar- cultural narrative. And not only that, what's even more ironic about it is your dad was basically, you know, a, a C-level executive at a Fortune 500 company. So explain how you end up on this path where you buy into what is effectively, you know, another version of this Indian cultural narrative when your parents actually didn't inher- you know, give you that. I mean, you alluded to it to some degree. So um, I think because my parents were both in their own way rebels, um, my everybody in my father's family had arranged marriages. I mean, it was so shocking that he picked his own wife and then a white woman on top of that. So it makes sense to me that I didn't get those um, get married, have kids, cultural messaging. But I did get the messaging that money gives you freedom and power to make choices. And combined with, you know, being ostracized by my peers in this small Midwest town because I didn't fit in, um, and finding solace with, um, with academics and and teachers that um, praised me as I moved into my career, that grades and and praise from teachers got replaced with money and um, promotions. And because of the way in which we seem to worship um, money and accomplishments and work titles and everything, it just spiraled out of control for me. Um, and so I think that's a, a big part of the reason why my cultural narrative isn't necessarily what you would think um, for an Indian woman. Mm-hmm. Even though your life outcomes seem to be exactly what you know they, they had led to, like it, it's almost like you followed the narrative without necessarily inheriting it. Yes. And I guess the reason I was thinking I didn't follow it is because the part of the narrative that to me seems so strong is family. You know, I mean, I, I look at, you know, I, I have an uncle in Boston and I have three cousins, both, you know, exceptionally, you know, a doctor, a PhD. Um, you know, they've all super accomplished. They all have kids. And at various points in time, they've all moved in with my aunt and uncle. So there is, you know, three generations living together. I mean, that's very Indian. Um, I did not place emphasis on family. I placed emphasis on money. And so in that way, I, I, I feel like I, even though I had quote professional success, which we are so driven to in the Indian culture by our parents, because I was missing that connection, that emotional wealth connection to the family component of um, the narrative. I think that's why I, I answered the question the way I did. Yeah. Well, I want to bring back a clip from our previous conversation, which I think will make a nice segue into talking about the book. So take a listen. 
what if instead of always looking for more, which is part of the American dream, you can fill in the blank, whether it's more money, more fame, more status, more house, more car, we focused on optimizing our own definition of enough. And I think, A, that could have such a huge impact on the planet just from a variety of different global climate change issues if we weren't consuming as much. But more importantly, I think it would have a huge impact on our happiness. So one, you know, reflecting on that quote after having written this book, uh, I want to hear your thoughts because when I read the book, I felt like the book was basically you know, a much more expanded version of what you talked about there. Yeah. You know, when I think back three, I, I think that may have been my very initial awakening in that period of time that you and I last talked that, um, something was really effed up in the way I was living my life. And I was trying to figure out what, what that, what that was. Um, but it took me a while because I, I was looking for a very clear cut answer to how do you find and define your enough. And it turns out it's a Rubik's cube of interdisciplinary issues that lead each of us to find out, uh, what is enough or, um, as it, in my case, um, to miss it for so many decades that you end up living a lot of your adult life on a 24-7 hamster wheel of hustle culture trying to get more, um, but ultimately always feeling like it's never enough and you're, as a human, never enough. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. Well, you opened the book by saying, I believe that we get stuck in the cult of never enough because we don't have a full understanding of the myriad of factors that have led us there in the first place. So talk to me about the factors that actually have gotten us to this place. Yeah, I think they fall into four big buckets. The first is what I call personal small T traumas. Um, and I, I call it small T because oftentimes it's things that in retrospect, you look back and you think, oh my gosh, that really shouldn't have had such an impact on me. You know, I referenced that bullying I went through. It was fourth to sixth grade. I'm not the first person on the planet to be bullied, but that bullying ultimately led me into this uh, winding path to being a good student, to being obsessed with work, to ultimately, literally... And I'm embarrassed to admit this, but identifying my self-worth as my net worth. And the roots were in that small T trauma. I talked to um, some executive coaches who deal with really successful people. And I asked them, you know, how many of your clients have been driven by small T traumas? And the answer ranged from 75% to 100%. So, you know, this really made me want to talk about it because a lot of us feel embarrassed that something in our childhood could so painfully have influences as adults. The second thing is cultural influences. And briefly speaking, what I'm referring to there is what Derek Thompson um, in of the Atlantic calls worshiping at the altar of workism. Um, and, you know, so defining who we are and our value as a human with what we do. 
uh, the third bucket are societal influences. And I know there's a lot of talk right now about how social media distorts things with um, overly curated images. My research led me to see that it went deeper than that. Um, that, you know, starting in the seventies, we had increasingly easier access to credit and starting in the seventies and really picking up steam, um, in the nineties to the aughts and into today, we're exposed to media images that are not accurate. We will see, for instance, a paralegal on a TV show <laughs> living a life wearing clothes, grooming, driving a car, living in an apartment, that when you look at the average income for that job, and then you add up what it would cost to live the way this person is being portrayed on TV, they have to earn 30 to 50% more. So the third bucket is the societal influences around things that easy access to credit has made it all too easy for us to um, get out of control with. And then the final is evolutionary um, biological factors because while humankind and the way we live has changed dramatically over the past 400 years, um, you know, for thousands of years before that, um, we lived in a very different way. We lived off the land and we knew how to survive off the land Today, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of the needs, our basic needs, food, shelter, so forth, transportation, the way we get that in our lives is through money. So, you know, our amygdala is going off to keep us safe. We need, we need money. And when you stir all of those buckets together, you can end up in this place where you feel like no matter how much money you earn, no many no matter how many accomplishments you achieve, no matter how much praise you receive, it's never enough and you're never enough. There's one other thing you say in the book, you say from a very early age, we're bombarded by deceptive messaging that draws our attention toward what we have and what we do. As we move through our social and professional circles, comparing our lot to our neighbors, we begin to believe that what we have is not enough, what we earn is not enough, and therefore we are not enough. But this message is an illusion. It's based on a set of beliefs and trends that I refer to as counterfeit financial culture. We place added value on expensive objects and experiences, be they hot handbags, status, status watches, or pricey memberships at trendy gyms where we work out in the latest must-have $150 yoga pants. One, I didn't know $150 yoga pants existed. but Oh, uh, they do. <laughs> uh, that's stripping in particular because I, you know, I, as I mentioned to you, I think that there's something like you had mentioned before we hit record in the zeitgeist. I feel like I've been having this ongoing conversation about enough. Like we had Tom Curran who wrote a book about uh, perfectionism and how we need to be okay with, you know, good enough instead of perfect. Um, you know, Jennifer Wallace, whose episode people probably have heard, you know, wrote a book called Never Enough When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic, which was sort of target, you know, geared towards in a lot of ways, parents and, and young people are really struggling with this. And yet, you know, with this, and this is something I want to hear your perspective on, because I remember talking to Thomas Kern about this and, you know, I said, there's this really sort of weird paradox or dilemma, right? Is that consumption is what drives the economy. And if everybody stopped consuming and we were all satisfied, the economy would fall apart. And I thought to myself, I'm like, this is like a PhD thesis worth exploring. Like I, I wrote a note called the satisfaction dilemma which is literally like what I'm trying to resolve here. And I'm like, wait, how does that work? Like how in the world 
in a world that is driven entirely by consumption, if everybody said, okay, now I have enough, we would have some potential problems on our hands. You know, yes and no, right? So what is enough? I mean, that's a big question. And the answer differs for everyone. But we're all still going to need to have some food, some clothes, some medical care, some exercise, some need to travel. So there are many things going on in, in, um, the, the, in our daily lives that fall into, um, a, 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 a framework of enough that can sustain the economy. I would argue that we've been hiding behind this notion that consumption fuels the economy. So if we don't keep it going, um, uh, it, the house of cards will collapse. Well, you know what? You know, I think about as we talk here today, Phoenix, Arizona has had, you know, whatever it is, like 20 straight days of 150 degree, 115 degree weather. And, um, people are burning their skin because the temperature of the asphalt is rising to almost 180 degrees. What, well, you know, not everybody will agree with this, but. I would argue we're having a climate crisis and that the root of it <laughs> is the things that help us consume. Um, and so I don't see it as, I don't see enough as a conundrum, um, in that context. I actually think it will help our economy and our planet. Let's talk about this idea of flawed self-worth anchors. You say that flawed self-worth anchors are any external possessions, symbols, accomplishments, numbers, titles, experiences, or credentials that give us a false sense of worth or make us believe that others must be more happy, successful, and fulfilled because they possess this anchor. I think that that struck me because I got the book deal. I had the self-published Wall Street Journal bestseller. And I'm like, wow, all the same self-doubt that I had prior to those things happening is still there. Like, Whatever, you know, sense of like enoughness or relief I got from those accomplishments was always temporary. So how do you begin to sort of uncouple these flawed self-worth anchors from our ambition and at the same time not lose our motivation? Does that make sense? I realize it's a really weird question. No, it's not a weird question at all. It's at the heart of the matter. Can you embrace the concept of enough? And yet not stop growing, stretching, experiencing things as a human. And I feel like there's a very black and white kind of narrative around more versus enough. And so the phrase I like to use and, and the way I've come to think about this question you're posing is why don't we just give ourselves permission to achieve less? And you can interpret that phrase achieve less, which by the way, when I first heard it, I wanted to dry heave because like no Indian child wants to go tell their parents that their new goal in life is to achieve less. Um, but the, the, the notion behind this is there's stuff in life that's important to us. There's stuff in life we, we have to do just to keep our life going. But most of us are running around so busy that we're not living. 
as I, I said, you know, the book, we're human doings. We're, we're surviving as human doings, not thriving as human beings. And so, you know, when I, when I, when I stir all this up, I, I realize that how do we, the, that the, the one way that we can address this issue is to let go of these flawed self-worth anchors and replace them with an authentic definition of how how we want to value our self-worth. So mine was, it was self-worth equals net worth. I'm working towards replacing that with self-worth equals connection to my family, to my friends, uh, which, you know, uh, I have lost so many of over the years because I don't respond and, and I've been a very bad friend. Um, and to my community. Um, and so, you know, the answer for everyone will be a different thing, but I think it's getting at, at that. Um, and just to add one last thing, you know, when I say, um, self-worth equals net worth in my mind, Along with that went flawed anchors like having the Chanel handbag and wearing the Manolo Blahniks as I'd head into a business meeting because that made me feel like I was more important and more successful. And frankly, I noticed that, you know, when I'd walk into reception, people would treat me different if I was dressed to the nines versus not being. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy if we hang on to these flawed self-worth anchors. Well, letting them go, I think, to me, is one of those things that feels easier said than done, right? Like, I can read your book. I can have this conversation with you. And I don't think I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and suddenly feel like, okay, I, like, I don't care, you know, what my parents think about how much money I'm making or the fact that I haven't gotten as far as I want to. Like, that's not going to happen. Um so talk to me about sort of, you know, understanding this intellectually versus actually you know, taking action on it. And I know that you alluded to some of the consequences of this in the book, like ending up in the hospital. And somehow even that didn't really change your behavior from what I read. Right. Um, and the thing that I, I, this is something I've always wondered, you know, for a lot of people that I talk to on the show, it's almost always some sort of crisis that becomes a catalyst for wake up call for them to do something. Yeah. And. I'm like, okay, can you bring about the change without the crisis or is it necessary? Because I feel like the crisis just pushes you to such a point of pain that you're like, all right, I got to do something. Whereas if you're comfortable, uh, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, I, I don't feel, you know, entirely content and I still feel like I'm not enough all the time, but it's not so toxic that I'm ending up in the hospital. So it's easy to keep believing that. Right. I mean, and that that is the question, right? Can we prevent this? Um, or do you have to face plant multiple times like I did? Um, you know, I, I share in, in, um, when I shared my story, I, I, this has been without a doubt the most candid and raw I've been in anything I've put out publicly. And the reason I did that and some of the amazing people I interviewed for their stories of never enough and how it affected them. I felt that we could not, because it's not an intellectual change that that's why we can't just wake up and turn it off 
And story has been one way that we pass down wisdom throughout history. And the, the, the stories, I think, of, can, of how other people have experienced this, because I think it keep it very private. We don't like put a billboard on our head saying, you know what? I've got a, I feel like I'm a loser because, and this is true. The guy who sit, sat in front of me in my first year of business school is now the CEO of Amazon, Andy Jassy. You know, it's like those things happen and it's so easy to fall back into that. Like, I'm not enough. And what I have found is that there are a couple of exercises um, that sound maybe simplistic, but they're really powerful. And the one I, I would like to share here, because anyone can do it, is, you know, ask yourself if $50 million after tax dropped on your head, and at the same time, you got a diagnosis that you're only going to live five more years, what would you stop doing? And what would you start doing? And as you really start to think through your answers to that, that's, that combined with the stories of other people, I feel can help you start to make incremental change. And, you know, that's why I wrote the book. Um, but the other thing that, um, uh, I want to mention is that it's not a linear path. After I wrote the book, I felt like I had been so liberated. I'd done the research. I understand how I fell into the cult. And then I had a mental framework for how to get out. And I was doing great until it came time to market this darn book. And you know, you can, you, you can never chase after enough publicity when you're uh, launching a book. There, it's never enough. And I had found myself Back in that never enough cycle, questioning if I'm enough. But now that I've gone through the monies and process and framework, I'm able to pull myself out and use the tools in the book to help me say, whoa, whoa, something's going on here and I need to get reset. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I can relate. I, I wrote a book about creativity for its own sake. And basically, for the first month, all I was worried about were how many copies it was selling. My sister's like, you're an idiot. So, like, that basically means that you're questioning the message of your own book. Right. Right. Which is human nature. Change is always three steps forward, one step, 10 steps forward, three steps. That's just it's messy. That's how it happens. We didn't get to a place where we were struggling with a never enough mindset in a simple way. You know, talked about the multifactorial, multidisciplinary set of factors that leads to this. So, you know, it makes sense. Unwinding it all is not going to be easy. Okay. Well, I have to ask you what role uh, aspirational media plays in all of this. I mean, things like self-help books and things like this podcast, you know, because if you think about it, every person who comes here is some person who's, you know, this extraordinary person who's accomplished something. And I think the the thing that Thomas Kern, who, who had uh, written The Perfection Trap, said to me is he said, yeah, he said, what we don't account for in all of this is survivorship bias. And he said, for all the people that you have on your show who did all these things and share all the things they did to get to where they're at, there are a hundred, a million people who did the same thing, but didn't get anywhere. 
Yeah. You know, I was, uh, somebody forwarded to me, uh, Instagram reel. It was, uh, Jay Z talking about, um, his career path to becoming Jay Z. <laughs> and, um, he said, you know, people just look at the end result. They, they don't look at the journey that other people, they just want to dive in and hit that end result that they see maybe a successful person, musician like him having. And on that path, all the work you do behind it, there's no guarantee that it's going to lead to success. And you're absolutely right. Two people may do the exact same thing and one becomes a sensation and, and one doesn't. You know, I wrote my first book at this, literally at the same time that Brene Brown and Gretchen Rubin, um, both of whom I adore, were putting out their first book. Now, both of them are global phenoms. I'm not a global phenom. And I did the same sorts of activities that they were doing. Um, and so uh, the survivorship bias can exist on, on so many levels. Um, to you completely wiped out. Um, to you didn't, you know, you, you thought you were going to make it to this level and you made it only to that level. Um, and it's not easy. I mean, my, my ego hurts when I stop and I think like, well, what did, what did Gretchen and Brene do that? What did they have that I don't have? You know, I mean, that, that's human nature. And that's why the practice that the, the desire to want to embrace the concept of enough can be so powerful. Because when those questions bubble up, and they do for all of us, and they have for all of eternity, um, it can give us an anchor or a North Star to start changing our thinking. It's funny, as I'm hearing you say that about Brene Brown and uh, Gretchen, like, we've never had Brene's guest, but I've had Gretchen before. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, well, imagine my world where at my imprint, not just people who are publishing books at the same time, but at the same publisher, your peers are Ryan Holiday, Simon Sinek, and Seth Godin. Oh, I'm like the yeah. redheaded stepchild of portfolio. And the thing that strikes me is that it doesn't matter who you are. If you measure yourself by some kind of external uh, metric, there's always going to be somebody who has more of it. Um, you know, the person who has the most money in the world today, because markets fluctuate, will not be the same person who has the most money in the world tomorrow. Um, you know, and I, I mean, it, it fluctuates down. I, I once had the opportunity to talk to the, the chairman of Juniper Networks because he and his wife founded a wonderful spiritual retreat called 1440 Multiversity. Um, the name references the number of minutes in a week. And he was saying, you know, no matter how many incredible things he accomplished over his career, whenever one would get done, he'd say, okay, now how can I top that? What's next? And, you know, this is that incredibly successful, um, individual. So, you know, it, I really think it's about changing your 
relationship to yourself in a way that the definition and the equation, like the word self, the equation self-worth equals question mark. I think you start to get on the path here enough by answering that with whatever feels internally authentic to you. Yeah. I mean, for you, self-worth could be creativity, you know, and, 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 you know, that's an internal thing. So let's talk about hustle culture uh, briefly, because I know you alluded to it. You said productivity is not a measure of my self-worth. I recognize this now, but at the height of my embrace hustle culture, I had so thoroughly internalized the idea deep in the nooks and crannies of my brain that it felt too difficult to detach my very worth as a person from the progress I made or did not make on my daily, weekly, monthly, and annual to-do list. You know, I teach a productivity course on knowledge management. So like that stood out to me. So talk to me about that. Like, you know, how do we find some sense of sanity while also feeling like we're making progress? And how did this hustle culture become so pervasive? I think it started with the shift from again, what Derek Thompson in the Atlantic would say, from jobs to careers to callings and the emphasis on the, uh, of the attachment of our identities to work, which in an increasingly global world with technology can now grip you literally 24-7, 365 in a way that work could not grip our parents. It logistically, it would have been impossible for them to be gripped in quite the way we are. Then for reasons that I'm not entirely clear on, we started to assign a level of worth to busyness that we related to the person's character. In other words, when you meet someone these days, everyone's struggling with it. You know, how are you? I'm good, busy or crazy busy or, oh my God, I'm so busy. But, you know, when we hear that, we don't think, oh gosh, you must really not have a, a grip on what's important in life and um who you are as a human. Uh, many of us think, Oh, wow, you must be doing something important. Um, and so we've come to use busyness as a metric. And then I think the other piece, and Johan Hari has written about this in Lost Connections, um, in the book Bowling Alone. There, I mean, there have been a number of different books that have talked about this, um, trend of loneliness. And so I think as work has replaced for so many of us, what places of worship or community events and organizations used to do in society bring people together. Um, we feel there, there's a, a need for human connection that is not being fulfilled and we don't want to feel that it's empty. So we fill it up by being too busy to feel anything. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. It, like, that's it's so true. Like I, I found myself in my own moments of loneliness. I'm like, okay, if I don't want to feel lonely, I know the one thing that won't make me feel lonely is to find something work related to do and yeah. yeah, bury myself in it. When I 
first embarked upon this journey. And I had, quote, free time. I literally could not fathom any other way to fill it than work. Um, and it, it, so in other words, I mean, it literally was an addiction to, to that busyness. And the, the antidote, um, to any kind of addiction is almost never a permanent one, right? No matter if you have an addiction to something, you are in recovery for the rest of your life. It, it doesn't go away. Um, and you know, that's why in AA there are meetings. Um, you know, one thing, there's a whole other topic, but one thing I've struggled with, um, is binge eating. And, you know, it, I am not doing it right now. It's been something that's come up in periods where I've been extremely stressed and I shove enormous amounts of food in my mouth in order to numb myself so I don't have to feel the stress. Um, I'm in a, a very good place with my food right now, but I don't, I'm not cured. Like that is an addiction and, um, I, I, it bubbles up and I have to revisit the healthy practices that I have put around it to help me not engage in that behavior. And I think it's the same thing for busyness and overattachment to, to the role work is having in our, in our lives. Um, those have become for so many of us, not everyone, but for so many of us, I believe they've crossed over the line into addiction. I think that the other part of the book that really struck me was this idea of a magic number. And I, I feel like we all have this sort of fictional number in our head. And, you know, writer Carol actually talked about this and he said, you know, the problem with these goals is that they're often just arbitrary and they're not based on anything. It's like, oh, a million dollars. He's like, but yeah, why do you need a million dollars? Nobody ever asks why and what they would do with it. But you actually say in the book that I'd spent my entire life working toward this moment, toward a single magic number. Getting there was no small feat. And I knew that I should have been celebrating. But as I apologized and wiped away my tears so we could get back to my friend and her financial needs, I could feel myself slowly sinking into an existential crisis. The truth I knew was that I wasn't. I was just shy of my 50th birthday. Most likely, half of my life was gone. I had nothing to show for it except the privilege of potential early retirement scenario that filled me with dread. Because if I stopped working now, that would mean I could no longer hide behind my work. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the number, there there once was a series of ads from the financial company, um, ING, and they used to have people walking around in, in the commercial with these um, uh, uh, pieces of paper taped to their head with... Um, literally their number on it. Um, and it, the, you know, it was an ad for retirement advice and services. And I think you are so right. We don't ask why. And for those who, who, um, have a spiritual practice, you may be familiar with the writer Byron Katie, um, who has a, a, a practice where she has people when they're dealing with, um, tough situations and, and toxic beliefs to ask, is that 
is this true? Is this true? Is this true? And to ask it for multiple layers. And what I find when it comes to this subject of never enough thinking, um, why? Why is the most important question? And I don't mean it in a, a Simon Sinek way of why, which is a very important and powerful way of why, but this kind of why, why is that my number? Why do I, why do I think that number is going to make me happy? Why do I? Why? Why? And you know, what's interesting is parents know this. Small children constantly drive you crazy by what? Asking why? 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 And they do it oftentimes going down so far into your explanation that you realize, wow. That's actually a really good question. I can't answer that last why. <laughs> um, so uh, that I think is is um, something that we can do for ourselves as we seek answers. Well, you, you know, towards the end of the book, make these really, I think, critical distinctions between money worries and money problems and financial health and financial stability. So expand on those for me and then tie them to the concept of money zen. So money problems are things that can be solved with intellectual solutions. My credit score is in the tank. How do I repair it? I'm drowning in student debt. How can I ever pay this off? How much house can I afford? These are money problems. The answers are intellectual. Money worries are concerns that have emotional answers. By far and away, uh, the number one worry I hear from women is, I'm worried I'm going to be a bag lady, the proverbial bag lady under the bridge. I'm worried that I'm going to be old and alone and broke. And I hear this from women of every income range, um, income and net worth ranges that you would, I mean, literally, they couldn't spend all of their money um, in, in their lifetime, unless they started giving it away at the rate that Mackenzie Scott is giving away, um, uh, her billions to make the world a better place. And so money worries stem from emotional issues, oftentimes found in those four buckets we talked about at the beginning of our conversation. In, Multi traumas in what our relation to cultural norms, how we're responding to societal influences, the impact of evolutionary biology. And so I used to think I could help people achieve happiness by helping them solve their financial problems. That was my career for 30 years. And what I came to realize is no. You do not have financial serenity until you address the money worries as well. And that leads us into the second part of your question. Financial health, I define as the ability to meet your current obligations with ease, no stress. You've got money set aside for an emergency and you feel good about the money that you are setting aside for the, the, the future, the purpose of it and, um, the amount of it. Now, you'll notice I didn't give you a number in that. That 
That's how we define financial health. What the numbers will look like vary for everyone. And I also want to acknowledge that there are far too many people who earn less than a living wage or are in professions that don't pay them anything remotely close to what they deserve given the value that they bring society. So there's a swath of people for whom structurally financial health may never be an option. If you are in the, the you know, and in the U.S., I would say it's the two-thirds of the population um, where that is a financial reality. Looking at financial health rather than striving after financial wealth, financial health gives you stability. And now you have the resources and the t- uh, in terms of your limited time and limited money. None of us have unlimited, both of them. And you can decide how you want to invest in your emotional wealth. And so the the way it relates back to Money Zen, I think of Money Zen as a state of mind where you have calm, confidence, and clarity about your relationship with money and the role that you want it to play. And I also think of it as a mental framework that you can refer back to when you start to feel off kilter in any emotional kind of way. I'm too busy. I don't feel good about myself. Um, I, I'm, 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 I'm doing, I'm striving to do more than I have time in the day. Then you can come back and say, is this effort helping my financial health, helping nourish my emotional wealth? Um, or, uh, or not? Cause if it's not, why, why? Um, am I doing it? And there's one other thing, if you uh, don't mind me sharing a piece of academic research around this. Yeah, of course. So um, for years, there was a stat that was highly quoted, and it said $75,000 is the maximum amount of money that you need in order to be happy. And any money beyond that doesn't really increase your happiness. And now that's an old study. So that number would have to be inflation adjusted. It would be, you know, significantly higher today. But it turns out, um, research, researchers from Princeton and Penn teamed up that that study, which many people rolled their eyes out, because even back when it was $75,000, people on the East and West Coast were saying, okay, if you are raising a family on $75,000, like, you definitely could use a little bit more than that and it would increase your happiness. What the researchers found was there is a number and that number is different for everyone, but it's a number where you've reached financial health. You have uh, the flexibility to do the things um, that you, you don't feel financially, um, uh, in pain, earning money beyond that will not increase your life satisfaction. The researchers found unless it was happening on a base of emotional well-being. And that's really the crux. You know, when they say money can't buy happiness and then there's arguments like, well, yes, it can because it can get you insurance and somebody to clean your house and it can help if your roof needs a repair. But the point is, there is a level for all of us above which more money will not make us happier. 
unless we have emotional well-being. And that's where I got. My financial health was really strong. But as I mentioned, I was emotionally bankrupt. So it didn't matter if I kept making more money. It wasn't going to do a thing for my life satisfaction. Well, let's wrap this up by talking about joy-based spending. Because you say joy-based spending is the opposite of budgeting. It's a concept that I came with after seeing time and again the mere mention of the B-word budget to clients and students caused their eyes to glaze over or their ears to shut down. At its core, joy-based spending is about squeezing the maximum amount of pleasure out of each dollar you spend so that your financial values are aligned with your emotional values, whether it's connection, creativity, authenticity, nature, or whatever reams you reflected on in chapter six. And it reminds me a lot of, for me, it's concept of money dials. And, you know, like, I think in what I like about his approach to this is he says, you know, like, cut ruthlessly on the things you don't give a shit about and spend, you know, freely on the things that you care a lot about. And I'll, I'll give you a personal example. Like, I'm moving back to Boulder. I've been here at my parents' house for the past year because my nephew was born and I wanted to spend time with my family. And I traveled to Brazil. And one of my friends was like, so are you going to live alone? And, and my cousin happened to decide to stay in Boulder. I was like, no, I'm not actually, you know. And what I realized was I was like, wow, I'm like having my own place. Like if I could spend my money on different things, I'm like rent falls pretty low on that list. Like I was like, I'll get my own place when I'm dating somebody. I want to move in with them. But I want to have the money that I would have spent on my own place to travel. Like that's pretty yeah. clear to me. Yeah. I was like, I don't want to spend that money on rent. I, um, uh, uh, feel like Ramit and I are two peas in a pod when it comes to our attitudes about pretty much anything financial. I have yet to find something he says that I disagree with. Um, yeah. and joy based spending is, um, you know, the, the, the dial, muddy dial, um, uh, in a different form. And for me, there are three steps. The first is to encourage people to do a joy audit where they, for a period of time, the gold standard would be a month, but for most people, two or three days is as much as they can tolerate. And you literally just write down whatever you're spending money on. And if it's a, you know, a let you, your health insurance payment gets processed and you get the notice online, well, you write that down or you're at the grocery store, you, you write down groceries and however much you spent. But the thing is, at the end, you don't add up anything. You just take out a yellow highlighter and you highlight anything that you spent money on that did not bring you joy. And I call those money leaks. And, you know, some of them are the usual things that we roll our eyes at. Um, you know, the cable bill, the, you know, internet, the et cetera. Yeah, definitely see if you can negotiate those down. But the really interesting stuff comes when it's like going out to dinner with this couple who always orders this super expensive bottle of wine and we don't drink. And then we split the bill 50-50. And no matter how nice the conversation is, come away feeling I'm seething. Okay, that's not bringing you joy. Next time, invite them over for pizza and bring them beer. Um, have beer for them. You know, the there, there are ways that, and then I find people to, to your point about housing, taking a look at their mortgages for the first time and saying, wow, wow. You know, sometimes it's in the context of, you know, my, my kids have gone off to college and now I have more bathrooms than people in the house. And what's the point? You know, I could use this money to travel. So the joy based audit is the core. The second tool is the hourly wage. 
um, test. This is inspired by Vicki Robbins' marvelous book, um, Your Money or Your Life, that um, came out in 1992. And is the book that's had the biggest impact on my life. And um, I had the uh, uh, opportunity to interview her for the book. And if people haven't read Your Money or Your Life, I cannot recommend it highly enough. But the idea is most of us spend about 2,000 hours a year on work-related activities when you include commuting, getting ready, blah, blah, blah. That's like 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year. And so if you're earning $80,000 and you divide that by 2,000, that's $40 an hour before tax. So now if you see something that costs $400, you have a ruler you can use. You could say, is that worth 10 hours? Well, more than 10 hours of my life's energy or not. And you get to say whether the answer is yes or no. Nobody else. But now you have a framework to equate what you're buying with the life's energy that went into earning the money that you'd use to buy it. And then the third is the, the power of a pause. Um, whether you're shopping online, um, I mean, that's so dreadfully easy to overspend. I encourage people to put things in their shopping cart and step away for a week and then come back and revisit if, if it's an item that's a want, not an absolute need. And if it's something in a store, then take a photograph and keep it on your phone and come back in a week and look at the, look at the item and ask. Um, those three things together, I find enable people to redirect their money towards the things that they love to do um, or find leaky money to pay off debts that are completely stressing them out such that the end result is ultimately more joy when those debts are paid off. So that's joy-based spending. And um, I've yet to meet anybody who's actually tried it, who has not found it to be transformative on some level. Wow. Um, well, this has been uh, amazing as I expected it would be. Uh, so I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all our interviews. And I'm really curious to see, I have to go back and compare your answer this time to the one from before, but what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it's curiosity. I find that curiosity is a superpower that opens your mind and leads you in directions that you may never have imagined even existed. And that's how I think people become um, unmistakable. Hmm. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, the new book, and everything else? So I like to keep things simple. Everything is at moneyzen.com. Info on the book, um, a fun link to a quiz so you can take it and see if you are trapped in the cult of never enough, all my socials, um, and even um, you know, book club guide, and I've got a fun, free, um, reflective journal. So people who read through the book, um, often are very touched by different parts. So you can download that, um, as well. So everything at moneyzen.com. Amazing. 
And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.